Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. For the next 20 or 25 minutes or so, or more like 25, I think, we will talk about oil and we will talk about the independent contractor rule at the Department of Labor with employment, uh, employment attorney Tom Scroggins. He'll be here in a moment. We want to remind you that we call the show Drilling Deep because you need to drill for oil to get it out of the ground and the name just followed. It's that time of the year when we look forward and I am finding myself in a place I'm usually not. I'm not a classic commodity analyst, uh, but anybody in this business who writes a lot about oil will tend to find themselves over time leaning bullish or bearish. I've tended to be bearish. So that's why I'm finding myself in a bit of an unusual place in that I'm not agreeing with the recent short-term energy outlook of the Department of Energy that sees falling prices over the course of the year. I'm reading a bit more into it, into the monthly report of the International Energy Agency, which came out with its January analysis this past week. Let's note here that the IEA does not predict prices. Let's also note right up front that as far as my more bullish views, all bets are off if we get a significant recession. Maybe I rely too much on one number, but I can't help but look at the OPEC call in the IEA report and not be more bullish than I normally would be. Let's define the OPEC call. What the IEA does every month is it estimates world demand going forward. It also is always looking backward when new information comes in so that it will readjust its previous estimates on what oil markets did. Not oil markets, but what supply and demand was. The IEA then estimates going forward what non-OPEC supply will be. They then estimate a category called OPEC NGLs, which are natural gas liquids. These include things like propane, and they are considered petroleum, if not exactly oil. When you hear the world consumes a little more than 100 barrels a day of 100 million barrels a day of oil, they actually mean 100 million barrels a day of petroleum, not crude oil, because the NGLs are in there. And then the IEA takes those two supply numbers, they subtract it from the demand figure, and you get the call on OPEC crude. That is the amount of oil that OPEC is going to need to produce to balance the market. That is the OPEC call. For the fourth quarter of this year, the call is 31.4 million barrels per day. For the third quarter, it's 30.8 million barrels per day. To find a time when OPEC produced that, you need to go back to 2018. Can OPEC really step up its game and produce that much in the fourth quarter? I have my doubts. In December, it barely reached 29 million barrels a day. So you can see the challenge. And then we need to worry about Russia. It is true that Russian supplies have rebalanced and the crew that was spurned by a lot of Western countries are now finding homes elsewhere. It's also doing so, those home, homes are being found at prices where the Russians need to pick up the higher freight charges, so they are getting hit by sanctions. What I'm really concerned about is whether Russia can keep up its current output of a little more than 10 million barrels a day, given that as every day goes by, it's another day without the Russians having the expertise previously provided by companies like ExxonMobil or Schlumberger or Halliburton, they've all stopped doing business with Russia. You cannot replace that kind of expertise internally that fast, if, if ever. I can't help think about Russia and think about Venezuela's mess and how part of that mess was that almost all the really smart companies got out of that country. And now that country, Venezuela, doesn't even produce one million barrels per day they should probably be producing close to 3 million barrels per day. 
So yes, I'm a bit worried. The supply demand for the figures, the supply demand figures for the market in the third and fourth quarter are pretty daunting. And I don't know if the world can squeeze that much supply out to get to those levels in the second half of the year. I'm normally an optimist, but I'm not right now. Time to move on here now on Drilling Deep. And we want to say that the books are closed. And more than 50,000 comments, I think it actually might have topped 55,000 comments, have been submitted to the Department of Labor uh, as they put out their proposed rulemaking on a new independent contractor rule that would be implemented by the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor. Now, let's, let's note here that it's kind of easy to put a comment in. A lot of times it's a it's a uh, it's a, a an organized effort, but still, 55,000 comments is still pretty impressive. And we're going to talk today with Tom Scroggins from the National Employment Law Firm of Constangi, Brooks, Smith, and Profit. They are based in Birmingham, and they advise businesses across industries on a myriad of employment law issues, uh, including classification and employee relations matters. So, Tom, welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on this very important topic that I think is going to take up a lot of employers' uh, time and effort this year. Yeah. Now, you've read all 55,000 comments, right? <laughs> oh, yes. I just did that over the weekend, right. every one of them. <laughs> so let's first give a quick overview no. of the rule. Uh, and if I say anything wrong, Tom, uh, please uh, please fix me. So there was a Trump administration rule defining independent contractors that was more favorable to the idea that a worker could be an independent contractor rather than an employee. That rule wasn't even formally rolled out until the last weeks of the Trump administration. And when the Biden administration came in, they promptly yanked it. But a court then said they couldn't do that. And so the rule went back into effect and remains in effect today. But the Biden administration did then propose its own rule. That was the one that was proposed a few months ago and brought the 55,000 comments. That one is seen as kind of putting the finger down uh, on the scale uh, of favoring a worker being an employee rather than an independent contractor. Tom, how's my summary there? Did that work? You, you've got it. So the, the Trump administration rule rolled out right at the very end of the Trump administration, I believe January of uh, 2021. And then Biden administration comes in, tries to rescind that rule. Court says, no, you didn't go through the proper process. So now where we're at is the Biden administration, the DOL there, is going through a formal regulatory rulemaking process in an effort to make sure that the, whatever the new rule ends up being has a lot, much stronger chance of sticking and not being invalidated by a court. Because once they go through the rulemaking process, that establishes some, some deference to the agency under existing case law. And so that's where we're at right now. So I mean, we joked about you reading all the comments, but I'm sure you read some of them. Was there anything in there that may have caught your eye as a kind of a new perspective on the rule? You think by now this has been so debated that almost everything would have been talked out. But I mean, did you have you found that that since the rule went out was, was proposed and the comments went, uh, went were put into place, that there's anything really different? Has anything really changed? Well, one of the one of the things that caught my eye is that if you look at some of the comments, it, a lot of the commenters are sort of tipping their hand as to what arguments they might use in the definitely forthcoming lawsuit. So let's be clear, as soon as this rule becomes final and is published and it becomes final, there's going to be a lawsuit filed somewhere, probably Texas or Louisiana, looking to invalidate the rule. And so some of the commenters tip their hand 
as to what they think the, or what will be the most likely arguments. So some of them are you know, what you might expect, such as the, you know, the, the rule does not uh, follow prior case precedent. It's outside the statutory authority of the Department of Labor to promulgate this kind of rule uh, that you know, the, some of the rules, some aspects of the rules uh, step on the authority of other agencies such as OSHA and the Department of Transportation to establish safety and health rules for the workplace. But one I thought that was kind of interesting and a little bit of a novel approach is that it states that one of the perceived challenges is going to be that the department did not allow the existing rule, let's be clear, the, the prior Trump administration rule that went into effect in January 2021, did not give it time to make its way through the courts and essentially see what kind of an effect that that rule would have. And so it's the argument is that the DOL did not consider all possible alternatives, which is one of the requirements for rulemaking. And then one of the alternatives that it didn't consider was, hey, let's just maintain the status quo and see how this rule uh, works in reality, because there have been few, if any, court decisions that uh, interpret the presently existing Trump administration independent contractor rule. And so, uh, you know, that'll be a little bit of a novel argument uh, that I see coming in the forthcoming lawsuit. But everything else is, you know, what you might expect uh, as far as what the proposed challenges or anticipated challenges are going to be. Well, do you think there's going to be any significant changes in the proposed rule when it becomes a final rule? Or are you expecting to, to go into, into effect largely verbatim? I think there will be some minor tweaks, but from you know an overall standpoint, I think the, the proposed rule is going to remain largely intact with these six factors that have been proposed. Uh, there will probably be some minor changes or additional commentary in the rule about things like uh, control, the control factor. So currently, you know, the, the proposed rule states that if a business retains control over the contractors or purported contractors, you know, means of doing the business. And if they say that in their contract with that contractor, that the contractor has to follow the law, has to follow certain safety standards, has to follow or meet certain customer specifications or requirements, then that's evidence of control that can be used to, or maybe evidence of control that can be used to rule that that independent contractor, that worker is actually a W-2 employee of the contracting entity. And that probably bears a little bit of fleshing out in the final rule because the way the proposed rule reads, it says, it says that kind of activity or contractual language may be evidence of control in certain circumstances. And that particular language is going to be very important for the trucking industry in particular because it is extremely common for uh, trucking companies to put in their contracts with independent contractor drivers or owner operators that they must follow all DOT regulations, uh, must follow the law in, in, in delivering their loads, you know, not, not drive overweight. Uh, and then follow DOT regulations with respect to amount of time that they've driven and things like that, just to make sure that they pass on those regulatory requirements onto the contractors. But the way this regulation is written, that language could be used to indicate that the driver is in fact an employee of the contracting 
Trucking Company, which, as you know, would, would upend many thousands of, of contractual relationships existing right now in the trucking industry. Yeah, this almost reminds me, listening to you, and we've talked about this before on Drilling Deep, I'm kind of reminded of, you know, some of those silly consumer protection laws, you know, that if, you, if, if you've got a, like a doll, a Barbie doll that's wearing a baby, that's wearing a life vest, you know, the life vest says on it, you know, not to be used by human beings or, you know, don't, don't try to put a fan belt on the engine while the engine's running. And, you know, what, what, what do you expect? I mean, these companies are is the only way to keep these people independent, to not advise them of basic DOT rules. But it has been pointed out that this is, I think, in the trucking, among the, the, the trucking legal uh, community, this is being viewed as a massive change that might really impact the whole independent contractor status. Yes, it could it could enact just massive massive overhaul of the existing industry. So, for example, particularly with owner operators who are leasing their truck, you know, lease to own situation, which is pretty common in the trucking industry. You got a driver who's leasing their vehicle from either their contracting trucking company or maybe an affiliate of that company, and they're having the lease payments maybe deducted from their final compensation every week or two weeks when they get paid. That type of situation where the trucker is leasing the truck from the trucking company, making the payments to them, uh, maybe has the electronic monitoring equipment installed by the trucking company, has access to their insurance coverage through the trucking company. Under the existing rule, you can almost guarantee that the Department of Labor would rule that 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 driver is going to be a W-2 employee of the trucking company regardless of what the contract says. And you can call it an independent contract agreement, whatever you want to write down there. That does not control. It's what the reality of the relationship is. So what is that? What would that mean? Well, that would mean under the DOL regulation, because remember, this is a, largely a wage and hour division driven regulation. If the truckers drive more than 40 hours a week or really work more than 40 hours a week, not just drive, but work more than 40 hours a week, then they get paid overtime, time and a half, all their hours, all their hours work and the employer would have to have an obligation to track their time clocking in and out. And, uh, can, you know, that's a substantial change to, uh, the way the industry works right now. And it, and it adds a whole other layer of administrative burden and cost that trucking companies don't experience right now. And of course, this is in the middle of a time when trucking companies are already suffering a dramatic shortage of, of drivers in the industry. I think it's estimated there's somewhere around 77, 78,000 uh, drivers short in the industry right now. And um, to add this additional layer of administrative complexity would, would be very difficult for a lot of trucking companies. So let's say the rule goes into effect. You mentioned, but first of all, you thought lawsuits were going to be filed by, let's say, state entities. So let's say they announce, well, the, the, the rule's going into effect. We've got a couple of tweaks First of all, what do you think might be the calendar on when that might happen? And secondly, even if you start to get, get, get to get state lawsuits against the law immediately, do you also start to get enforcement actions pretty quickly as well? The two of them, I assume, can move on parallel tracks. They can, but he, here's here's my prediction. And look, take this and you know five dollars and get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. If I didn't, here's think, what if, I think. If I didn't think your prediction was good, I wouldn't have had you on uh, drilling deep. Come on now. <laughs> well, here's what I think is going to happen. Uh, this rule probably gets published uh, by you know somewhere in the middle of the second quarter of this year, you know June or so, 
And there'll be a date set in there in which it will go into effect, probably, I'd say, 90 days after publishing. And then pretty much immediately thereafter, you're going to have a lawsuit filed by trucking associations, probably state attorneys general, uh, and it'll be filed most likely in Texas or Louisiana. Because uh, there have been a lot of these lawsuits to seeking to invalidate regulatory uh, developments have been had some success in those venues. And then you're probably going to get a judge that will enjoin the enforcement of the rule while that lawsuit is pending. Okay. And so enforcement activity will be put on hold, most likely, I think, until the district court rules. Um, now, how that, everything I've said so far is pretty solid. Whether a judge will invalidate the rule or not, I don't know. I've got, I've got some questions about that because this economic realities test, it's not so dramatically different from tests that have been used in the past. Right. And let's point out that the Trump administration rule, which is in effect now, does use the economic realities test, but just with a somewhat different interpretation, correct? Yes. It's fewer factors. And, you know, it doesn't focus on reserve right of control. It, It focuses largely on, you know, actual exercise of control. So put that in layman's terms, just because the contract says you can do it, but you don't actually do it, that's reserve right of control. But under the DOL's view now, if your contract says you can control that aspect of the relationship, that's reserve right of control. It doesn't matter whether you actually do it or not. Just because you reserve the right to be able to do that, that's indicia of, a, of an employee-employer relationship. So there's no doubt that the, you know, not, the impact and the intent of this proposed rule is to reclassify a huge swath of current independent contractors as W-2 employees for lots of various public policy related and political reasons. Now, there's two ways of getting there. Let's say the rule goes into effect. One would be if the the wage and hour division takes an action against a particular company. And the other would be companies just simply changing uh, their way of doing business, their, uh, uh, their, their contracts, whatever, to make sure that they don't become the target of an action. And I'm going to guess there are going to be more companies that fall under that definition than the ones that actually are targeted by uh, an action from the wage and hour division. Yes. I mean, the vast majority of employers don't really want to take on the federal government and the Department of Labor in some piece of litigation. And so they'll direct their efforts most likely towards compliance as opposed to challenging the law. Most of the most of the challenge serious challenges are probably going to come from associations like the American Trucking Association, state attorneys general, uh, and that'll be the lawsuit. And then the result of that will, will indicate whether that rule really goes into effect against employers. And then, of course, if the rule does go into effect and it's ultimately upheld by the courts, ultimately probably the Supreme Court, I can very easily see this issue making its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, then, of course, employers are going to have to or companies are going to have to change their practices, alter their contracts, and and in many instances, reclassify independent contractors as employees and just comply in that way. Because there are some situations where, you know, you're not going to be able to have these workers classified as independent contractors just by nature of the the industry and what they're doing. 
and the control that has to be exerted or at least reserved over what those folks are doing. Um, and truck, the trucking industry could be one of those. Healthcare could be another. You know, one, one thing I was thinking early was, well, even if the rule goes into effect, let's say you had a change of control in the White House uh, at the 2024 election, they can come in and the next administration come in and just yank the rule. But I think what's happened to the Biden administration rule, that would be a cautionary tale for, let's say, let's, let's just assume for argument's sake there's a Republican administration after the 2024 election. I think based on what's happened with this rule, that next administration might not want to yank the Biden rule that quickly. And I'm, what, I guess what I'm suggesting here is that, is it possible that the Biden administration rule on independent contractors outlasts the Biden administration, even if you have a change of power in the White House? It could, but with the political atmosphere that we have right now, I could easily see, uh, you, know, you know, one thing, you know, one game that's being played out here is trying to tie this up in the courts so long that it never really actually goes into effect until such time as the White House changes hands and then it can be rescinded before it goes into effect. Right. But back, to our, other- but back to our earlier discussion, the issue I think here would be how many companies change their operations to comply with the law, even if it's tied up in the courts because they want to keep themselves safe. Or do they stand back and they say, you know, let's just wait and see how this plays out. I mean, what would you advise your clients? Well, in this particular situation, I would advise my clients to wait to see if the rule actually goes into effect and and survives any legal challenges, because there's going to be a substantial legal challenge. Now, this reminds me, if if you recall a few years ago, under the Obama administration, or towards the end, there was this substantial change in the salary level test for exempt employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act, where the salary level was going to go from about $24,000 a year to in the high 40s. And so a lot of employers went ahead and raised the salary levels for their exempt employees, thinking that that rule was going to go into effect. And then all of a sudden, a court enjoined the enforcement of that particular rule. And in fact, it never went into effect. I mean, we eventually got a different change in the salary level test last year, but it wasn't as, as dramatic as, as the rule was under the Obama administration. But in this particular case, I think employers should wait to see before they undertake a huge overhaul of their independent contractor relationships, take a wait and see approach to see one, whether this rule gets enjoined. I think it probably will. We'll know that by middle of the year, June, July, August and then see if it survives the court challenge. Because for many employers, this is going to be a very dramatic change in how they conduct their business. Yeah, you talk, it's a, one last question. You talked a lot about truck drivers before, but here at Freightways, we look at gig workers as well. And uh, one of the other things in the rule that I think a lot of people found interesting and raised a few eyebrows was the suggestion that if you have a car uh, and you are a gig driver, uh, that is not a sign of independence where in the past it might have been because the assumption now is you would have had a car anyway. So just owning your own car to make to, to ferry people around or ferry food around does not show independence, whereas it might have in the past. Is that your interpretation of it? Yes. I mean, that what the department is essentially saying is that they're not going to look at the ownership of the vehicle necessarily in that in that gig type work relationship like with Uber or uh, DoorDash, they're not going to look at that as a capital investment by the 
independent contractor, they're going to look at other aspects of the economic realities test to determine, you know, whether there's an independent contractor relationship or an employer-employee relationship. So there, you know, this is a multi-factor test, six factors. They're they're not no one factor has any particular weight. So what the regulation directs courts to do is look at the totality of the circumstances, all six factors. And depending on the facts of each situation, some factors may be more relevant than others. And the department is essentially saying for those gig workers, the fact that they own a car, don't look at that as a capital investment by the uh, worker, which would be indicative of typically indicative of an independent contractor relationship. You know, here I'm drilling deep whenever I've interviewed a guest like you uh, about independent contractor law. I always say that, I, you know, I've only been covering it a few years for freight waves. And when I first started doing it, I figured I'd come across the case or the one or two cases that made it all clear. And then after a while, I realized there's no such case and that this will always be a, a basis for litigation and argument. And, uh, hey, you know what? It makes it a great story for journalists like us. So, uh, and it makes a lot of great work for lawyers like me. I, 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 you know what? That was implied in that statement. So, <laughs> <laughs> we want to thank Tom Scroggins for the National Employment Law Firm of Costanji, Brooks, Smith, and Profit here to talk about the Department of Labor's proposed rule on independent contractor status. And uh, Tom, we may have you back again to talk about it after, well, after whatever happens, happens. Well, I'd love to be back. We'll have some more answers by that time, I'm sure. Uh, or we may have a court ruling that says, hey, no, there's a no-go on this. Yes. Or we, may, we, may, we may just still have a lot more questions. So uh, thanks, Tom. You have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from FreightWaves. You can find us on FreightWaves TV. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I'm your host, John Kingston, and please join us again.